You are listening to Money on the Left, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. Heterodox economics is a concept that probably gets too often and too easily associated with radical democratic aims. Anyone who has encountered a history of economic heterodoxy that includes the Austrian school as heterodox will know what I mean. For others, another way of saying this is that, by its very nature as a broadly defined category, Heterodox economics is a mantle that might reasonably be claimed by academics of various political stripes. One does not have to advocate for a federal jobs guarantee, for example, to be counted as heterodox. Neither does one need to oppose many of the neoliberal notions that structure our current global economic order. As is true for economic orthodoxy, then, the devil is in the details of the political, ethical, and ecological assumptions that structure any given heterodox school of thought. Our guest this month, Matt Forstadter, is perhaps the best equipped heterodox economist to give us the details on the assumptions, inheritances, and arguments that laid the foundation for what we now know as modern monetary theory. As one of the principal MMT theorists and teacher and advisor to many of the more recognized MMT advocates today, Matt was there. How he got there, though, is just as crucial a part of the story as anything else. From an interest in poetry, to black political economy, to the problem of invention, Matt's circuitous path to MMT shows MMT to be far more than it is often understood to be, by opponents and advocates alike. We're thrilled to have Matt join us and thank him for sharing his story. Thanks also to Megan Sauce for the graphic for this episode and to Rich Farrell for the transcripts. Special thanks, as always, to Nanin Kula for the theme tune. If you want to support the work of the Money on the Left Editorial Collective, follow the link in the show notes to our Patreon page. All funds from the Patreon will go to support members of the team who do this work without the benefit of full-time academic jobs. Forstetter, welcome to Money on the Left. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's so wonderful to have you finally with us. To get us started, we'd like to ask a, a bit about uh, professional and personal backgrounds and how they end up leading our guests to become what they've become. Can you do that for us and, and tell us how you came to be involved with heterodox economics and what uh, brought you down that path and what maybe influenced you the most along the way? So I guess at some distance... I can say that I I was something of an unusual uh, kid. I was a, a big reader uh, growing up, and um, I was very interested in Black history, you know, like in elementary school, find the books about Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, you know, whatever you could find, and all that kind of thing. And um, actually in um, all the way up until I, I went to college, um, people thought that I would uh, go into, I think the humanities um, that like I won an English award in, you know, junior high school and I you know uh I wrote I was not you know a math and science uh person I certainly wasn't taking any 
you know, personal finance courses or anything like that. Um, a, 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 uh, a, a big uh, moment in my uh, development was when I had gone to public school um, from kindergarten to the end of 10th grade. And um, I had been not doing well in school in 10th grade. And I always did well in school. So anyway, long story short is that I went to an alternative high school for my last two years. And I'm sort of of the generation that was alive during the 1960s, but not old enough to, you know, participate uh, in it, but to be aware of what was going on. Like I have older brothers and, um, and I watched, you know, the Watergate hearings with them. And so I went to an alternative school and the alternative school. So it, it was run by you know, very progressive minded people. You call the teachers by their first names and there's no rules practically or whatever. So, you know, I look at the classes that, you know, I'm going to pick for my first semester and, you know, there's communism, Eastern religions, uh, transpersonal psychology. I mean, it's just, I, I, I in heaven, I mean, you know, this was just like the greatest thing. And um, actually, uh, a course that I ended up uh, taking for two semesters that maybe had the biggest influence was conceptual art. And it, I mean, just opened up a, a whole world for me of, um, yeah, art and theater and poetry and the um and the borders between fantasy and reality and uh audience and performer and all these kind of different you know issues and um so uh then i i guess you know i was always motivated by you know what we say now social justice issues and um so i uh was very concerned about you know the world especially after reagan was elected and was talking you know about the soviet union was the evil empire and it seemed very scary you know uh it really it really was for me um and so I uh, decided instead of going to college, I moved to a farm and it was actually like a homestead school. And uh, so there's a group of us on this property and we were growing organic food and learning how to about solar energy. And, you know, our goal was to try to be as self-sufficient as possible. And the uh, Three Mile Island nuclear accident occurred. That was just 11 miles away from the farm. And I mean, it was 
big deal because the radiation doesn't stop at the gate of the utopian commune is you know kind of the message that i realized was that you know i i really you can't separate yourself or i didn't feel for myself that you know just going and finding um you know someplace where you could make your you know imaginary uh utopia um and meanwhile you know there's still these problems in the world and you're not going to be able to you know so um after that uh i i i left the farm and um then i lived on the west coast for a couple of years and pursued poetry as you know, my interest in poetry and uh so uh then finally i made my way back to uh the east coast and um registered for my first college course it was introduction to the black aesthetic taught by sonia sanchez who was a you know a well-known poet certainly in the uh philadelphia area she's like you know an institution but um uh, she's someone who was not as well known as sort of nikki giovanni or um some other uh young uh poets uh that were part of the black arts movement um but you know i think now she's pretty recognized in any case um it was it was just fantastic i mean um and uh i uh, was able to you know develop a a, a a nice relationship uh with uh the professor and um uh, and we all like uh, did some type of performance at the end of the course and in any case this course uh, at that time was being offered in the department of pan-african studies and um the department at that time it uh, it, was, it was a very interesting uh, department because like one of my professors was vietnamese um and there was a very yeah global kind of uh third worldist um kind of a uh view and a lot of emphasis on the connections between like african americans uh and uh in the or or Africans in the diaspora and uh, on the continent. And um, so I, I just started taking, you know, different courses uh, in Pan-African studies. And uh, in the meantime, I, you know, was taking introduction to this, that, and the other thing, because I really didn't know what I wanted to major in or what I wanted to do. So, you know, finally, I, I settled on 
on Pan-African studies, the name changed in the middle of um, my time there uh, to African-American studies and some of the um, faculty changed. So the temple became uh, a center or the center for Afrocentric thinking and African-centered worldview and uh, you know laying out the methodology and the philosophical foundations or whatever of um, uh, an alternative. And of course, the critique of Eurocentrism uh, was a big uh, part of uh, the curriculum. My focus really became um, and uh, I started to look at issues both in the U.S. and, um, of course, uh, the anti-apartheid movement was also going on at that time. Um, and uh, so the relationship of race and class is, is what uh, I was kind of grappling with you know, how much of what we see is, is due to, you know, class and how much is due to racism and what's the relationship between capitalism and racism. And then, you know, I also um, tried to, um, you know, bring gender as well into you know into the the uh, analysis into the picture, but um, so I was introduced to political economy um, by an anthropologist. Actually, I I only had two economics classes as an undergrad, um, and there was you know one or two. Uh, heterodox sort of professors at Temple, but, um, uh, you know, I mean, not anymore. Uh, one left. Uh, and um, so, uh, but I, I, I was, uh, I only just saw a little bit of mainstream economics in my introductory class. And I mean, the teaching assistant had to take me aside after I think the second day and say, like, you're right about everything you're saying, but I have to get through, you know, this material. So I think here's a bunch of professors, you might, you know, like their classes or whatever. And I'll tell you, I took a lot of his recommendations and they were all just like fantastic. I mean, um, I was, I felt like I was very fortunate to have some, uh, fantastic professors, even just in these introductory courses or, um, they're, uh, they have a, a required course for all undergrads called intellectual heritage, uh, at Temple. And, you know, it's taught by, you know, like dozens and dozens of different people, but somehow, like just even picking a section because of my schedule, uh, I ended up 
you know, uh, having some, you know, wonderful, uh, wonderful teachers as an uh, undergrad. And, you know, I was getting into studying in the library and, you know, researching things just uh, on my own. And um, so I felt like I wanted to systematically study political economy. And um, so somehow I, I heard about the new school and uh, saw their course descriptions and said, okay, you know, I can go there. I can try to uh, catch up on the technical stuff that, uh, you know, I don't have a background in the stats and the maths and all that. Uh, but, you know, I can also take these courses in, you know, basically economic history, the history of ideas and political economy. I mean, you know, really in those days, you had, um, you had uh, three courses that was all Marxian economics you know, like uh, two, two introductory uh, and then one advanced. And then there was another advanced one that was not required, but, uh, you know, like, so, I mean, we really delved uh, deeply into it. And um, this was, you know, uh, the time when, the mode of production controversies were going on. And I got really interested in that because I, I was interested in economic development and I was interested in Africa. Um, but, you know, sometimes uh, things uh, affect, you know, the trajectory of your uh, career that, um, you know, it, 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 it can be uh, seen somewhat arbitrary because, you know, at the new school, the faculty is very small. So uh, there's only really one faculty member for each field area. So, you know, there's one person in international trade, one person in labor economics, one person in money and banking. If we were lucky, we had, you know, all these covered. But um, if a faculty member would leave, which is what happened, the the uh, development economists left. Uh, then it took them two years till we had, you know, a replacement. And by that time, you know, you had to keep, you know, moving on in your. So. Um, but I was very fortunate because even though development uh, wasn't available, uh, race and class was being taught by uh, Rhonda M. Williams. And uh, it turns out that she was only at the new school for two years. So, uh, I, you know, I used to say like, I'm the, you know, last person who did a field and race and class with Rhonda Williams. I mean, I might've been the first and last. I mean, there was maybe, you know, only like three people who actually were able to, you know, do it. But 
in any case, um, she was doing a lot of really exciting work. And, you know, one of the things about heterodox economics is that, you know, there's different ways of being heterodox and there's different ways of being orthodox. And so we had um, some heterodox economists who methodologically were extremely conventional. I mean, almost the uh, crudest type of positivism in terms of their just like view of science and not really any different than mainstream economists saying, you know, economics is a science. I mean, you know, uh, people who are heterodox in content, but not method, maybe we could say, um, have a very similar idea of and you, you know, I mean, we've seen this in in uh, some brands of Marxism. You know, uh, uh, the idea of science, uh, and so on. So, uh, Rhonda Williams and also another newer professor, uh, Will Milberg, who is now the dean of the graduate faculty, but he was a new faculty member then. So, they both were very early um, uh, explorers of kind of postmodernism in economics. And <clears throat> so this was um, the aftermath of uh, Donald, uh, now Deirdre McCloskey's book, The Rhetoric of Economics, which raised a lot of methodological issues and kind of um, uh, reinvigorated a, 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 uh, a reflection on, on methodological issues. And so that resulted in all of these different, you know, sort of cottage industries opening up in different aspects of methodology. So that was a very important for me, um, you know, because before when I heard things like from out of economics, I had a gut feeling that, you know, something was wrong with these arguments. But because I didn't know the language, the models, the terminology, and all these things, I really couldn't, you know, uh, engage with it uh, in in a very strong way. So this is what I was doing: is I was learning the language, um, but you know, at the same time, um, I was. I, I mean, you know, African-American studies is, you know, by its very nature, interdisciplinary. Um, it is uh, very uh, historical in its approach. Um, and 
uh, and then the critique of Eurocentrism, you know, I would say is the is the other part. But so anything that would come up, if I would see a reference to sociological economics or economic anthropology or you know whatever it was and then out of this sort of postmodern uh turn finally reaching economics that also opened up and you know with uh, marx and political economy it, it it there were um a lot of uh, uh of ways to engage in um, cross-disciplinary, you know, uh, thinking and collaboration and so on. And, um, you know, I, I mean, that too has been, uh, so uh, in the end, uh, I uh, had, uh, taken a job for one thing without even having my dissertation topic approved yet uh, and um, so I Where was that job? Uh, Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania and um, uh, there was a, a fellow from Malawi uh, Derek Gondway who was in that department and was um he had gone to he got his phd at manitoba which had uh had and still does kind of have a heterodox phd program way uh north in canada and so um he kind of became like a mentor of mine uh but you know you're working full-time and you're trying to finish your dissertation and you know like a lot of my motivation for uh, starting the institutes um, was to provide students with PhD funding so that they didn't have to work and do the dissertation at the same time, if if possible, because you know just to have, for students to have one year, let's say, you know, to devote to their dissertation. You know, they finished their coursework, they did this, they did this. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, that's really always been uh, the, what I wanted for uh, students was, for them to have the same opportunity that they do in the mainstream departments. You know, I mean, I, I would say like, it's pretty unheard of for people to, you know, pay their own way through a PhD program. Like mostly if you're like getting to that point, there's a good chance you know, you're going to uh, be offered some type of, you know, support. And um, so heterodox economics has never really had that, except on a very, very, you know, tiny uh, basis. So that 
that, you know, I, 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 I really began to see um, how it was going to be necessary. You talk about institution building in, um, in heterodoxy. So this was also a time when there was uh, a debate about uh, big tent heterodoxy versus you know all these different um, sub fields or not fields but uh, paradigms I guess so you know you have the Srafian over here and the uh, Marxist over here of one type and Marxist here of another type and post-Keynesian of one type here and post-Keynesian of another type there um, and um, some like really felt strongly that you couldn't mix schools of thought you know heaven forbid we should uh, you know do something like that I mean it really was um, kind of incredible thinking about it now because how else do we move forward unless we are grappling with and improving and modifying and that means you know learning from other insights and so on and just and what years are we talking about right now well in the 80s like um so i was at the new school you know physically uh from 87 to 92 um and and so the word heterodox you never even heard that in the beginning part of that time period may maybe just toward the end of that time um you started to hear because Fred Lee was over in England and he was starting this association for heterodox economics and some of these things. So um, before that, post-Keynesianism kind of served a similar purpose in that it was, um, with some exceptions, uh, less dogmatic and more open, you know, I mean, people have even made these arguments and, you know, there was a big period where critical realism was all the rage in post-Keynesian economics or whatever. And so, uh, but this idea of like a, a certain humility, you know, like, because I never saw any one of these uh, schools as having all of the answers. And uh, yes, um, feminist economics started to, you know, uh, emerge and ecological economics. And you already had black political economy, you know, that had been, uh, you know, back from the 60s and so on. Um, and you know, you had these different heterodox professional associations um, like the social economics, the evolutionary economics, and 
you know, of course, the, the other the others. Post Keynesian never had a professional organization which did uh, have some repercussions because, for example, at the big meetings, in order to sponsor sessions, you had to have an organization. So, you know, the social economists and the evolutionary economists and the feminist economists, uh, historians had their sessions, but post-Keynesian, you know, because they didn't have a uh, professor, post-Keynesian would have their own conference. And uh, those became uh, very important for MMT uh, because UMKC started sponsoring uh, these conferences uh, and they were very international, very well attended and very early in, you know, before the term MMT even, you know, came out. Uh, a lot of these ideas were being debated, uh, you know, at these summer schools. It weren't just conferences. We would have um, uh, graduate students and uh, young professors or, you know, people early in their careers um, who would come and you know, do uh, three to five days of hearing, you know, from all different uh, speakers. And uh, then at the end, there would be, you know, a full two or three, two and a half day conference. And so it, you know, it, it, these were great experiences. And the institutionalists started doing one as well, which we also sponsored. And um, some of these were explicitly interdisciplinary. How did, how did you get from Gettysburg to UMKC? So I, uh, I, I, uh, wrote my dissertation with Robert Heilbronner and uh, and then I had my third year review. I mean, these days, forget it. You know, if you're getting one year to finish, that is it. I haven't heard of people getting more than that these days. Uh, so for me to go three years, I mean, really, uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, anyway, I got done <laughs> in time for my third year review, but, you know, I spent all my research time writing my dissertation. So I felt like, you know, I needed to focus on some research and publications and, um, I applied for a research uh, research scholarship or whatever with the Levy Institute. And um, so it turns out now I could say that, you know, uh, Pavlina, who had been an undergraduate student 
at Gettysburg. She obtained a a um, uh, prestigious like uh, fellowship with the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, which is no longer associated with the Levy Institute, but in those days it still was. Um, uh, and so uh, she came to the Levy, and then Randy Ray had a long time. Um, uh, association with the Levy Institute because Minsky had been his teacher and Minsky was the chief kind of face of the early years of the Levy Institute. And, um, and his uh, former student, Stephanie Kelton, then Stephanie Bell, um, had been doing uh, an MPhil at Cambridge and the Levy Institute and Cambridge had an exchange program. And so she came as a Cambridge scholar or whatever to the Levy. So we all converged um, on the Levy Institute. And Wynne Godley was there. And um, uh, his name isn't brought up so much maybe these days, but the sectoral balances was really, you know, kind of elaborated by Wingodley. And uh, he, he was a big support uh, of ours um, in terms of, you know, all the stuff on money and everything. He was uh, not as enthusiastic about the job guarantee, but on the money and budgeting side, you know, uh so um so it, it, randy was on leave from the university of denver i was on leave from gettysburg college and um one year turned into two years and all during this time we are organizing sessions at conferences and um uh had uh visitors like uh, bill mitchell came from Australia and, um, you know, some others. I mean, basically, we were talking to everybody we possibly could talk with, and we were submitting papers to the heterodox journals, um, of which there are many, and we were going to the various meetings. We were sponsoring our own workshops and conferences uh i mean we used to have a we called them workshops but if you would look at these uh at, at these lineups of our conferences i mean they really now i mean it's it's it, it's unbelievable you know we brought together what we had was funding so we could say you know we will bring you here we can fly you from europe or australia we can put you up you know and all that kind of a thing and even for u.s based people like um we had a uh conference on so each one would have a different you know theme like we had one on social security and uh several of the um people from the national jobs for all coalition uh, uh, you know, we invited to participate in that. So Trudy 
Goldberg and um, Helen Ginsburg and Sumner Rosen. And so, you know, they are, I mean, I hate to say, but, you know, like, uh, unfortunately, I can say for myself as well, like heterodox people are not getting, you know, big invites all around to, uh, you know, present their work and share their ideas and so on. So, you know, I mean, I, I soon figured out, you know, it doesn't take long that uh, heterodoxy has created a kind of parallel institutional structure. You know, you won't let us into your journals, we'll have our own journals. And you know, at one time there was a uh, concern that, you know, people's careers could be affected because if you only published in these heterodox journals, they weren't ranked as high as, well, I tell you this, I mean, now it's not like I've been at, you know, I guess Ivy League schools or whatever, uh, but I have never seen like a non-economist dean or provost or anybody question the journals the refereed journals uh the, a lot of them have you know been in existence for decades and um and you know the they have uh, uh boards and editorial boards and so on the people from you know uh with prestigious records and so on so yeah i mean um, but, you know, that's not a completely satisfactory solution. So you've talked, you're talking a lot about uh, this institutional coalescing around the Levy Institute and everyone's sort of on leave. And yeah. it's a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an extended summer camp, maybe. Yes. Um, but, and then you, you're talking about the way you, you start inviting people and, and staging these events and it's all very exciting what is this all big tent heterodox or is this is where is so-called mmt emerging how is that coalescing are there certain topics problems shared social values that are that are coalescing here as well or is it just well we're all in the same place and we all we've all got different ideas how, how did what was that kind of primordial soup like in some ways you know there was a certain kind of iter iterative uh, process to it um but you know i used to like jokingly say uh in the early years i should be writing a book or an article on the socialization of professions or the uh social or, or sociology of knowledge, like introducing a new paradigm, you know, what that entails and like all the different things that happen and like, you know, what are the, you know, tipping points or, you know, whatever, like, um, but so we uh, did not just all you know, go to the Levy Institute and, oh, we're all kind of post-Keynesian. And then the next thing you know, like MMT, we, so um, 
so that was an organized thing that we would all converge on the Levy Institute. Uh, Pavlina had done uh, an internship with Lauren Mosler. And I mean, she, uh, between her junior and senior year, and, um, and as a sort of result of that, um, uh, she kind of did a crash course in post-Keynesian monetary theory. Uh, and so that her assignment was to write a critical review of uh, Mosler's soft currency economics. And um, then she did that. And then she also worked on another paper, which was like a math model type uh, paper. And um, she was able to participate in the 50th anniversary of Bretton Woods conference. Um, and there were only three economists at that conference, Randy Ray, Charles Goodhart, and Basil Moore. And everybody else was sort of from the world of finance or hedge funds or something, you know, like, uh, but um, uh, Goodhart, he was working on uh, the paper that uh, became the two concepts of money. So then he, you know, introduced it chartalism and metalism, right? And the, that whole uh, thing. And so um, uh, he, he was working on that uh, paper and uh, he even incorporated some of the uh, like African studies references about the colonial tax and that stuff into uh, at least some versions of of that paper. And um, then Randy had started uh, to work on um, the book that became Understanding Modern Money. That was published at the very end of 1998, uh, I believe. Um, but, um, he and I both had working papers, like starting in um, 1997, that like he had had one, you know, government as employer of last resort, uh, one uh, money and taxes, the chartalist approach, uh, and then one on like functional finance. I forget what it was called, but, you know, basically he covered what at that time we saw as like the three main areas uh you know the history of money and the nature of money um and you know different contending theories of money um the government budget uh deficits national debt and all of that and then full employment, the job guarantee, uh, which, you know, then was uh, referred to as the employer of last resort. 
uh, or public service employment. You'll see that as well. Um, so some of these things like had different names for a while, like with chartalism, people really didn't like that name uh, or, uh, I mean, I, I never saw what, you know, what the big deal was, but in any case, um, uh, so, um, so, I mean, the bottom line is we were introduced to uh, soft currency economics in the summer of 1996. And um, then uh, when Pavlina came back from her internship, then when she was a senior, she took my, my seminar in macro and monetary theory and uh, she did an honors um, uh, an honors undergrad thesis uh, on you know uh, on this uh, on these ideas and <clears throat> and um, there was this post Keynesian um, email discussion list listserv uh, that was you know sort of instead of blogs or podcasts or whatever in those days it was listservs and a lot went on on those you know like I mean incredible uh, discussions and debates and uh, dramas but um, so uh, Warren Mosler found his way there I, I mean that's where I first saw his name and uh you know that's where he saw my note that I had a student who was looking for an internship so um and then Randy and then Bill Mitchell that's where I first saw his name as well was on uh that list so um you know these ideas uh, like tax-driven money um, and that, uh, you know, the deficit is just accounting information and, you know, just like these basic sort of cornerstones or whatever of uh, modern money. I mean, each one had to be, you know, completely unpacked and thoroughly examined. And then, you know, what we started to find out is that these were not completely unique ideas um, and that there was a long uh, tradition in each of these areas. Now, maybe finding them all together in quite that way was uh you know was new uh but um i mean you know one of the things that i did was um i looked for evidence in the history of economics and beyond economics to find evidence of people who had recognized that uh that money could be tax driven, you know, because at the beginning, there was a lot of, you know, one of the things that people always, you know, assumed is that we were arguing that 
all money that there ever has been or ever could be was tax driven or, um, you know, that they would exaggerate, like our critics would exaggerate our claims, you know, instead of saying that in a certain institutional uh, context, then the monetary system or the budgetary system can be managed in this way, right? Uh, but, you know, not saying that under any possible imaginable institutional arrangements. I think, I think if listeners haven't already, you know, heard your background um, in in black studies and, and poetry, and then coming to economics later offers perhaps a a bit of a unique, uh, you know, intellectual background that could that led you to this point, right? On those on these lifters, and then importantly, as you mentioned, in the institutional context of post Keynesianism and and heterodoxy more broadly. So right. with with reference perhaps to um, this sort of lingering background, what do you feel like your primary contributions to this moment and to this to this coming to be of MMT uh, were? And how how did your background inform the shape that they took? I came to the Levy Institute uh, my stated like proposal was to take a historical and interdisciplinary uh, to conduct a, a historical and interdisciplinary uh, analysis of uh, employment and budgetary policy. So, you know, in fact, uh, you know, I'm still a research scholar uh, on the website of the Levy Institute. And if you click on me, it still says that that's what I'm doing, you know, uh, which is fine. Uh, but the, the, the first thing I actually worked on um, was, you know, all of my colleagues were taking a super macro uh, look at the economy. And you could, you know, state all of the, you know, main things about uh, money and so on, you know, in these kind of sectoral balances level, you know, like there's three sectors, right? domestic government and and the international sector uh but like i came out of a, a tradition within post keynesian economics that sometimes was called structural post keynesianism or uh institutionalist post keynesian or post keynesian institutionalist and um so basically like instead of only looking at things in the in the you know super aggregated way um the economy is looked at as uh 
a set of linkages uh, among industries and that, you know, let, let's take labor, you know, like movements of workers between different firms and industries and um, the different amounts of activity in different industries and so on um, was part of both unemployment um, and also had to that understanding or that level of analysis had to be part of full employment policy. So um, like I did a paper, you know, full employment policies must consider both effective demand and structural and technological change. And I mean, this was actually a little bit controversial among my colleagues, but where I think one of the interesting parts of this comes in is um, that what was uh, behind my going into this uh, into this work was the constant bringing up of the Koletsky article about full employment and why full employment, you know, could never be in capitalism. And, um, and I thought that, you know, what was kind of missing in a way from the post-Keynesian uh, tradition or Keynesian tradition that you had uh, with Koletsky and, and Marx was recognizing the functionality of unemployment and excess capacity. And so the job guarantee, I mean, this is the ironic thing, the job guarantee actually addresses those issues. Um, whereas, you know, like, if you would try to just have generic government spending, the deficit spending to uh, pump the private sector up to something close to full employment, if you could even get there, right? It would create all kinds of problems because of the loss of the functionality of, um, of unemployment and excess capacity. So I did, uh, I did uh, publish a couple, you know, papers in this area, but like my main interest has always been um, what we could do with this, and you know, for myself, like um, you know, you were saying in your question, Max, like uh, you know. How, what are the implications for the um, you know goal of environmental sustainability? What, what's the implications of this of this knowledge that that we have now of of, of uh, how money works, how the budget can uh, work, how a job guarantee program, looking at all the different you know programs like it kind of what their obstacles were and all these different. But what might, you know, what if all these jobs were, you know, helping the environment or 
you know, what I uh, came to was, you know, the, the first uh, point is that public sector activities should not be judged on the same criteria as private sector efficiency criteria. Uh, so, you know, uh, people are, you know, politicians or media or you know, people are always saying, you know, how inefficient the, you know, public sector is and what well, we should have the private sector do it because it'd be, but, you know, a private company's uh, seeking to maximize profits and minimize their internal costs. And sometimes we have other goals that are broader, social goals, macro goals, uh, economic, you know. So uh, the uh, public sector activities um, are not for profit and therefore minimizing internal costs is, is not the goal, okay? The goal is to, you know, perhaps um, find a cost effective way of achieving independently given goals. So goals that are the outcome of a political process, you know, and then that means that we don't do a cost benefit analysis and say, Oh, well, you know what? Guess what? Slavery is really efficient. You know, these kind of things. So, you know, sometimes something is done because it is the right thing to do. And that is independent of cost in just uh, purely dollars and cents. And so, open things up. It, public sector activities should be geared towards other other things. And so, um, so you know, that led to green job stuff and, um, and uh, functional finance and ecological tax reform and, you know, just, you know, the idea that, hey, you know, uh, people have all these different definitions of green jobs. You know, a green job is a job that is not harming the environment. I mean, so, you know, it doesn't have to be explicitly performing an environmental service. Of course, you know, some, some, jobs will perform an explicit environmental service but some like you know caregiving and uh, the library or you know uh, whatever it is uh services basically practically pure services that use very little natural resources and don't pollute right they're not producing carbon and so on so um, there's that piece. And then, you know, also um, with uh, race and class. And uh, so, I mean, on the one hand, I got 
um, into the colonial uh, tax and colonial money um, topic uh, using the example of, of Africa under colonialism and um, the way that the colonial monetary system, you know, uh, and how the uh, government used the monetary system to promote, you know, um, the growth of market activity to uh, the wage labor and all those kind of things. And then um, on the other hand, uh, some stuff on uh, African-American issues and then rediscovering uh, Martin Luther King's writings on the job guarantee and then Bayard Rustin and um, the uh, Rand Randolph Institute, the uh, Freedom Budget, and so on. And it's like, wow, you know, this is this is great. And um, so, you know, in the last few years, I mean, you know, one would think that you know uh, MMT was like all about social justice and environment and the environment, but it really wasn't, you know, always that way. Um, so uh, I feel like, you know, I, I was able to, um, you know, first of all, show how we could be thinking about uh, the use of these policies and, you know, this knowledge and um, opening up, you know, some different different lines of, of research. The, the one other part is the, um, you know, going back and finding all of these statements that, you know, are clearly tax-driven money in, you know, I mean, just like, it almost, Adam Smith, like all the neoclassicals, it's, it's unbelievable, you know, and then, of course, in Marx, I found, you know, the stuff in there. And so, I mean, just the, the thing that became clear was that, it, 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 that they all were emphasizing that it's in a specific institutional setting, then this is how a government money can be managed. And so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that part started to come through. So, you know, of course, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, there's a, you know, a million more discoveries. I mean, at, at, all the time people were sending me, oh, Tolstoy was a chartalist and, you know, vaguely everybody was, I mean, the crazy thing is, so what I'd say is that there were a lot more, uh, there was a lot more awareness both within and outside of economics um, of tax-driven money uh, than previously thought. Uh, and th there was a lot uh, more uh, support 
for a job guarantee type uh, program uh, in history, then, you know, like uh, we uh, knew about. And um, then uh, Learner. Uh, so, yeah, somehow, I don't remember exactly how, but I kind of, uh, you know, I mean, the, the interesting thing about, you know, working with a small group of people on something that seems like new um, is that, you know, you're talking all the time and, and discussing and debating and stuff and like, somebody says something and somebody else picks up on it or whatever, like it's really difficult to, you know, exactly pinpoint, you know, the origin of a certain, you know, notion or, uh, you know, so, uh, I mean, and I think, you know, people like Randy have uh, often say like at the beginning of their books or whatever, you know, like, this is the result of, you know, group, uh, you know, the, the research of many people and the work of many people and da, 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 da. I mean, maybe that's, it really is, uh, it really is uh, true. The, the, the things that um, moved us, so our first, um, our, our first, real um, uh, you know target was kind of to you know thoroughly introduce these ideas or present them or get them discussed and debated uh, uh, in all the different heterodox among all the different heterodox groups and to publish our work for it to go through the standard you know refereeing process and all that and um then uh so uh the opportunity at umkc opened up uh toward the end of our second year at the levy institute and you know, basically we all went to UMKC and they had a PhD program, an interdisciplinary PhD program. And, you know, it, it, it was very successful and we had to uh, show that, you know, our students were going to be able to get jobs and, you know, like, you know, so many uh, wonderful colleagues that we have who came out of Young Casey's uh, program. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I've said this quite a bit, but, you know, when I was younger, uh, I always thought education was, you know, one of the greatest sources for peaceful social change. But it takes so long. Uh, but now that I'm older, I realize that you can have like a tremendous impact over a 20, 30, 40 year career of supervising students. I mean, 
you know, uh, we've got, you know, however many, you know, dozens of students around the country who are teaching and publishing and organizing and, you know, leading, really, you know, like uh, uh, Pavlina, Fadl, Stephanie, they all, you know, they, they did. Now they've gone beyond, but, you know, they started out as, uh, as our students. We must prepare and learn how to care for sooner we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. I love kind of the the capsule version of your contribution early was the question, what can you do with this, with the sort of underscore under the do? And that's something that I think that a lot of us, you know, in the editorial collective have connected with MMT over is like what the possibilities that are presented by it. Um, But I think a lot of the story, I love hearing you every time I've heard you or talked with you about the history of MMT tell this tell this story but i think that um i've also encountered other versions or or angles on it i'm thinking specifically about frederick lee's history of heterodox economics the posthumously published i think 2009 with rutledge that that what can we do with this is a question that is is interesting and then you you run into and how do we do it as a as a supplement or a second order question um, and that's where you, you sort of seem to run up against institutions and the limits of one's own capacities at that moment. And I think that returning to, to Lee's book, one of the things that I've found interesting and also a bit confounding is, is his kind of where he ends up. And of course, this is 2009, um, published posthumously, is, is we need to basically win out in the academy, right? Um, and that will be our most direct path to you know potentially affecting policy in a way we've not we heterodox economists have not been able to to this point and we do that by you know uh, making sure that our journals count equally with mainstream journal publications and things like that and we build phd departments and 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 really a lot of it is it is it is institution building within in the confines of conventional institution building, right? So it's almost the theory is that we need to match and over, and overcome what our what what orthodoxy has has accomplished, right? By through the very sort of means that they have accomplished what they've accomplished, um, and I think that part of what's you know continues to be compelling about MMT and I think you, you've alluded to this by referring to you know the students right the the second generation um uh is that is that it seems to me like transcending or operating or building institutions outside of conventional institutions has become um maybe a, a bit more part of the story and, and especially in the recent decade and a half um I don't know if you wanted to if you could say a little bit about how you understand sort of after this we've got the heterodox conferences we've got the heterodox journals we've got you know levy and we now we have a phd department 
right? Um, and then, you know, in the last 15 years, how do you sort of see the institutions of MMT having taken shape and evolved and maybe, um, you know, in a way that, that people wouldn't have expected back in 2000? Right. I think, you know, one thing that has to be brought into it is that, you know, as we were, you know, focusing on getting the ideas out there and publishing and establishing a department and those things, uh, the real economy continued to uh, make people's lives miserable. Uh, so the global financial crisis and Occupy, I mean, that was huge for MMT. That's how, you know, this patchwork of chartalism, job guarantee, and functional finance and sectoral balances became MMT, you know, is really because of the global financial crisis. And then the most recent, you know, crisis, the pandemic uh, crisis and so on, especially like, I mean, think about the impetus to MMT just as a result of people seeing the amounts of money, you know, that were spent, you know, during the, you know, the bailout in uh, 2008 or whatever. And then, you know, with the uh, pandemic or whatever, and like the impact that even giving people a couple thousand bucks has, you know, on their lives and all the other issues with you know, uh, it connected the academic with activism. And I mean, I really feel like it was maybe like also social media. So we had the proliferation uh, at the same time, it seems like, of you know, everything from, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so on. And groups and activists, you know, emerging in this way. And uh, I would say the Modern Money Network, it, it, it was, you know, a total surprise uh, that, you know, oh, okay, we've got some law students, you know, somebody said, uh, who are interested and uh, started, you know, to uh, hold some events at Columbia. And, um, you know, because the thing about the law schools is that, you know, Harvard has heterodox people in their law school or, you know, uh, you have or or Cornell or you know whatever and so they have a platform their voices are you know they've got their uh the prestige behind uh, the messages so you know that was that was a, a very I think important you know piece as well so the the and and then um you know, so you have like the actors, you have um, Alexandria uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and 
the sunrise movement, you know, green jobs for all, you know, like uh, shirts on in front of Pelosi's office. I mean, uh, yeah, total shock. And it's, it's like crazy. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And then Stephanie uh, working with Bernie Sanders and all that that, you know, brings and then um, lots of, uh, you know, media coverage starts to, you know, so then like things, you know, they have a life of their own and a momentum of their own that, you know, propels things. And then, of course, you get in all different directions and things as well. I feel like it's it's great. Like, I have the opposite feeling of, you know, anyone who wants to keep it. When you say keep it, you were holding your hands close to your chest. Yeah, keep like keep, keep, tight, keep, keep a secret to myself or something. Siloed. Like, if yeah. I... If I insist that, you know, I'm going to converse with people who agree with me 100 percent, I'm going to be sitting alone in a room, you know. So, I mean, and are we going to try to find places where we can build alliances and bridges, you know, I like there were always some people who, you know, accepted like two thirds or one third or, you know, whatever, like they had sympathy with part of our project, but not necessarily all. And um, I, I never viewed this as, you know, a problem. It was just like, that's the way things are. I mean, and, um, you know, we'll continue to have conversations and so on, but you want, I think, to, you know, have a pretty broad uh, MMT tent, you know, uh, is what is, I think, healthiest for uh, moving things forward. Like with the doctoral dissertations, I feel it's great when students do something different with the material. Like uh, Zdravka Todorova, she took feminism, she, uh, uh, household debt with the sectoral balances and uh, chartalism and post-Keynesian and kind of, you know, came up with like a very great piece of work. I mean, and there's a whole, I mean, there's, there's dozens of, of examples like this of, you know, um, either applications to certain time periods. I mean, because the amount of like work that remains to be done is just so much. Like we just, you know, just scratch the surface. I mean, uh, he, and then you see, okay, now you got to get to work. I mean, and that's why it takes resources, uh, you know, because uh, this is where, you know, funding students, having students who can 
you know, uh, and, you know, of course, we're not like a department of MMT. So we, you know, we do a variety of things, uh, but they're mutually supportive of, you know, of one another. One of the reasons why, uh, of the many reasons why we, we wanted to bring you on the show, uh, you're, you're very much playing out, which is, I think, in, in the name of getting certain MMT lessons out there, right, there's been an effort to streamline them and to, to make them into sort of, you know, idioms or, you know, easily yeah. repeatable sayings. And that's fine. And that work needs to be done. Um, and then there's the inevitable, you know, misconstrual of them and things like this. And what I think, I, I'll just speak for myself. I think when I see certain resistances to to MMT on the left and in a, a certain kind of intellectual uh, left that is, you know, in some way in and out of the academy or working in like literary magazines or what, whatever, is they they don't have any sense of this kind of rich interdisciplinary history which includes the present (laughs) and phd students and and sunrise organizers and all these people kind of taking up you know what i often like to call a, a shared problem space right in in different ways and go to work on it and be like yeah but we haven't thought about this you know this deeply important feminist problem and about domestic <laughs> the organization of domestic labor under patriarchy right and i i really really appreciate the way you're bringing you're bringing that sense of richness and heterogeneity that often gets lost in certain more dominant discursive spaces to the table um and then I think I have a, a a question to maybe help wrap us up. Uh, so you gave a talk uh, that we invited you to to give a keynote at our first uh, Money on the Left conference. This was a few years ago, back at um, uh, the University of South Florida, where I teach. And you did a lot uh, in that talk, and it was kind of performative, right? And you brought it was multimedia, and you played. I think a lot of like hip hop music clips and you yourself, I think, engaged in some poetic practice. Um, and I, I kind of want to, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I just, I'm curious if you could revive some of the, the ideas and impulses of that talk. And I think ultimately, at least conceptually, have you talk about what you were doing with what I would call futurity, right? Like, a, a, a kind of practice, a research, a method, a modality, a social dynamic that is oriented toward the future in a particular way. So the methodology for public policy that uh, I worked on in my doctoral dissertation, then I've um, you know published some stuff about it. It, it approaches. Uh, policymaking from this idea that we have to begin with a vision of the, you know, sustainable and just society 
that we want to create. And that then analytically, we work backwards from the vision of where we want to go to find a path that connects that future with where we are now. So then the idea is that this kind of working backwards invites the imagination to discover policies that would move us in the direction that uh, we seek. And so that involves, uh, you know, that, that has always been um, an important part of uh, how I view things. And it turned out that, um, so Adolf Lowe, who was Heilbronner's teacher and uh, whose work I was examining in my uh, dissertation, uh, he, you know, promoted this idea of, uh, he called instrumentalism, but uh, instrumental inference of, of this working backwards idea. And um, it, uh, one of, one of its uh, most appropriate applications is when it comes to the environment. Uh, because, you know, like, if uh, we know that the assimilative capacity of the environment has the ability to deal with, say, X tons of, you know, a certain emission per year, then, you know, that gives us the constraint in a sense that we, you know, cannot go beyond. Uh, and so our goal then is given to us by that, you know, scientifically informed political process. And if we would have just worked forward, then there's no telling if the amount of emissions would be consistent with, you know, the uh, uh, sustainability. Right. So and we might work it, through cost benefit analysis instead of it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, so uh, you know, in cost benefit gives the goals. That's how the goals are determined. If even there are any goals determined, and we're not just wandering aimlessly or whatever. Um, so that. Um, opens up, you know, the whole envisioning aspect of things. And, you know, because I draw from outside of economics, then there's so much like you talk about, you know, like a rich uh, material, you know, for, you know, complementing or that uh, we can, you know, engage with. You know, and it turned out that uh, Abba Lerner, because he was also at the New School and a colleague of Adolf Lowe, and he participated in this conference that was evaluating Lowe's argument. And basically, Lerner 
stated that functional finance was perfectly consistent with Lowe's idea. So that, you know, made it very, and it also works very well with what I was talking about earlier with a slightly disaggregated analysis uh, from the super macro level uh, stuff. So part of what um, the, the methodology work that, uh, you know, that, that I did and, and that I've used. Um, so it, it, um, examines things like, uh, following a hunch or, uh, guessing, uh, things that don't, you know, appear in scientific papers, right? Uh, because they're, they make, you know, they sit uncomfortably somehow uh, in like a scientific paper. But if you go to scientists' diaries and letters and autobiographies and journals, then they're talking all about this kind of stuff. And so the role of the imagination. So, you know, C. Wright Mills' sociological imagination, I mean, that fits very well with the kind of thing, you know, so the economic imagination, the ecological imagination, you know, however you want to um, describe it. So, you know, that took me to, you know, all these literatures which are about discovery and like even in the uh presentation down uh at uh you know south florida um i brought up the sherlock holmes you know quote or whatever because yeah i mean he's talking about working backwards and then like i discovered like a few other little interesting uh things but you know, I just am someone who, um, like in the appendix to the sociological imagination, C. Wright Mills uh, talks about, you know, the researcher's file. And it's not just, you know, a file cabinet uh, full of articles or now, you know, like files on a computer, but it's snippets of conversation that you heard a, 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 a something you read in the newspaper um you know a dream you had i mean all of these things can be part of the discovery process and so the whole process of discovery of um diagnosis of detection I mean, the part that that I was focusing on was there are things that we can do to enhance our powers of discovery. And uh, that I got really interested in and uh, sought to 
apply because in a lot of ways, like there are more than a certain content of, you know, heterodox economics or even interdisciplinary heterodox economics, more than a certain content, it was for me, how do I go about investigating a problem or identifying a problem worth solving, right? To be able to consciously and intentionally make everything a potential source of advance, I guess, uh, you know, of, of um, reflection or of consideration. I mean, you know, with all, there's this, all these literatures about entrepreneurs and, and uh, their, you know, powers of discovery in finding, you know, profit opportunities or whatever. Uh, but I mean, I see no reason why policymakers uh, shouldn't be able to, uh, you know, use the same powers of discovery, you know, to come up with innovative ways of dealing with, you know, the most vexing problems that we're facing just you know uh, it's hard to get up every day it's, it's so overwhelming so it is part of my lifelong grappling with certain core questions the relationship between materialism and idealism and a some type of um rapprochement or whatever in terms of recognizing material and and ideological aspects of of society and you know what the germans called the problem of freedom and order you know like oh we could have a sustainable world we could have like eco-fascism you know, people on every corner, you know, uh, making sure you recycle or whatever. Well, that, that's not satisfactory. Um, inspiration is so important to me. And like the arts and the humanities, I find, you know, very inspiring, especially, you know, music and and uh yeah performance so i've had some fun uh over the years we kind of had a tradition where i would do poems at the end of the summer school or uh yeah i mean when you get tenure and promotion then you you can uh go up to the lectern with your guitar or you know whatever so I'm I'm sure the expansive grappling will continue, but I can't think of a better place to sort of conclude this conversation. So, um, Matt Forsetter, thank you so much for coming on Money on the Left. Thanks so much for having me.